I'm Shane Twist and welcome to Behind the Beef, a podcast that gives you a look behind the scenes and into the everyday activities of people behind the beef. Today, we are delving into Angus Australia's Northern Development Program and we'll speak to some producers utilising Angus genetics within their Northern Beef operation. today's episode, we have an interview with Angus Australia's Northern Development Officer, Jen Peart. Jen, from her base in Injun, Queensland, is part of the Strategic Projects team and in her role works to further build on opportunities to benefit the Northern Beef supply chain through the use of Angus genetics. Heading up the Northern Development Program, Jen works to support producers with her passion about producer profitability and delivering research and extension of value. In our chat, Jen breaks down the Northern Development Program recent findings coming out of the program and where Angus producers can find further information that can assist them in integrating Angus into their herds in the northernmost parts of Australia. To give a little background on yourself, what is your role within Angus Australia? My role, Shane, is Northern Development Officer with Angus Australia, um, and it's a part of the Strategic Projects Group headed up by Christian Duff. We're doing a lot of work around uh, predominantly R&D to support those using Angus in Northern Australia and look at opportunities that we can take advantage of and provide genetics to Northern Australia through that, through that R&D. Firstly, can you give a little snapshot into the Northern Beef Production System and the role Angus cattle play in the supply chain in the north? Yeah, sure. So the Northern Beef Production is really the powerhouse of the Australian beef industry. Like between uh, Queensland has the largest population of cattle in Australia and we're seeing more and more Angus influenced. Obviously, there's a lot more crossbreeding in northern production systems. But at the moment, uh, based off a recent study we've conducted, there's about 1.8 million head of Angus influenced animals in Queensland. So it's actually a sizable population. And as I said, it's really the engine hub of the Australian beef industry. And so therefore, um, contributing to it being more profitable and more productive is something that Angus Australia doesn't take very lightly and that we're that we're very keen to continue to improve on and build on. Angus cattle have a somewhat negative correlation in terms of its utilisation within the northernmost areas of Australia due to traits such as coat colour. What is the aim of the Northern Development Program within Angus Australia in regards to its work in supporting the utilisation of Angus genetics in the north? Yeah, so you're very right. Um, some, some areas within the northern production system present challenges to the Angus breed and there are, there are parts of Australia that aren't suitable to Angus but there's vast tracts of the north that can capitalize on some of the benefits like the maternal traits uh, that we see in the fertility that are sort of sought after in the Angus breed. Um, So at the moment we're doing a bit of work regarding heat tolerance, we're looking at coat length and its relation to heat tolerance but also dag in feedlots and its impact on fertility. There's a lot of opportunity. That's just the actual traits of the breed. If you're looking at things like fly and tick resistance, there's a lot of opportunity to do work there just given the challenges that areas of Queensland particularly but the Northern Territory as well present to boss taurus breeds and specifically Angus. Within the program, you are assisted by the support of the Northern Development Consultative Committee. What is the role of the Consultative Committee? 
The Northern Development Consultative Committee, Shane, is a group of producers with experience in the North who are based in the North, who sell bulls to the North, and they offer a range of experiences. And they're just, they're, they're a fabulous group, fantastic group of people, and they're quite invaluable to the program itself just because they give us a source of ground-truthing information around what they're seeing on ground, what their experience is, uh, with a lot of the projects that we're, we're planning to implement. So they're very good at... Um, providing advice and identifying um, priorities to producers on the ground. It's it's a very effective committee um, and very engaged. So we're very fortunate to have them on board. When it comes to common misconceptions of the Angus breed in the northernmost areas of Australia, what traits do Angus importantly feature that is a driving factor for producers in the north from your investigations? Fertility and those sort of traits are, are very commonly sought after, particularly in cross in cross breeds. But the thing that really attracts people to Angus is the marketability of them. There's a lot of avenues that are open to people considering that there's quite a demand for Angus, particularly in the south. So you see a lot of people breeding them. They can sell them as weaners. They can sell them as feeders. They can finish them and they perform very well in a meat quality sense. So I think that it's uh, that that product that people are really chasing that sort of incentivize producers to try Angus and breed Angus um, just because they can sell them. A survey was conducted by Angus Australia in a co-funded project with Meat and Livestock Australia from May to June last year of Aussie beef producers. What was the primary purpose of the Australian Beef Breeding Insights Survey? So the survey was conducted, Shane, to uh, achieve a number of objectives, one of which was to quantify the number of Angus there are in Australia. And it really gives the research that Angus Australia does weight um, when you consider the amplifying factor of X number of Angus in the Australian production system. Also where they're distributed uh, gives us reasonable information to go off when we're setting research priorities and looking at what we want to achieve and where it's going to benefit producers the most. Um, So that was one objective that came out of it. A lot of attitudes and opinions around Angus, what their problems are, what their benefits are, um, that was all captured in the survey as well. And that again feeds back into setting research priorities and Uh, where there's opportunity to do work and also some of the information around how people select bulls and that sort of thing just yeah feeds back to members and gives them sort of more sound information to base some of their marketing on so it it was really well-rounded and it's going to be it's a real asset and it's going to be informing strategy for some time in Angus Australia. What was the sample size and group for the survey and how was it scrutinized? So we got a really good sample size. So we overall interviewed 1,023 producers and that was distributed all across Australia in all states and a very representative number in each state as well. How it was scrutinised, so obviously there were a lot more people than that interviewed, but there were parameters set around the number of head that you had, whether you still intended to be a part of the Australian beef breeding businesses in five years' time, so whether you were planning to continue to produce beef and a a number of other criteria had to be met before you were able to take part in the survey. Yes and this was obviously all whittled down so we got some very representative answers from a a sizable number of people. There were a number of key points drawn from the survey. Can we break down a couple of the key findings that have been found from the survey? 
Yeah, so there's some great findings from the survey. Probably the biggest figure is based on the survey data, which is again survey data. There is 48% of the Australian beef breeding herd is actually influenced in some way or another by Angus. So it's a huge population of an estimated 5.6 million females and about 2.4 of those females, uh, 2.4 million I should say, are actually purebred Angus and they account for about 20% of the national female herd. In terms of bulls, uh, we're seeing a lot more bulls selected by producers that are, are Angus and that was about 46%. In terms of management, we saw predominantly people using control period paddock joining. And then in terms of rating their knowledge of things like genetics and their bull selection criteria, temperament obviously came out as number one as the selection criteria for bulls. Another thing that we investigated was the knowledge of genetics and areas where we might be able to provide some extension. So uh, people in New South Wales and Victoria rated their like self-rated their knowledge of genetics much more highly than other states. And so, yes, it's identified some interesting avenues for uh, work to be done from an Angus point of view. How is the penetration of Angus genetics gauged within the survey? So we calculated penetrance two ways in the survey. One was breed influence. So we looked at the number of cattle the proportion of cattle that are influenced by Angus genetics. So that go, ranges from being purebred Angus to crossbred Angus of varying degrees of percentage of Angus. The second way was the genetic composition of the Australian herd. So the proportion of the gene pool that is comprised of Angus genes, of purely Angus genes. And it was quite interesting, the results. Um, you could tell in states that have a higher amount of crossbreeding, such as Queensland and the Northern Territory. So on a national basis, Angus accounts for 48% um, in terms of influence, so the number of cattle that are influenced. But if you talk about purely composition, the proportion of the gene pool that is, consists of Angus genetics is around 33%. What conclusions can we draw from the results found in the survey regarding the use of Angus genetics in the Northern Australian beef production systems? There's a few conclusions to be drawn, Shane. And I think that, so this survey is a our original benchmark and this survey will be conducted every five years. So we can sort of track change and as people and their businesses progress whether that includes angus or if it doesn't so some of the conclusions that we can draw around this is that it really identified and quantified just the size of particularly the northern angus herd and the huge opportunity that we have to provide very relevant and topical research as well as extension and providing people support while they're breeding Angus. We also learned a lot about producers' management styles, how they receive information and how they like to receive information. There was a, there was a very vast range and it's going to be very informative. For an overview of those reached in the survey, can we break down a couple of key target markets that were found through the results? Yeah, so there's a lot of there was a lot of work around this and it was interesting to see, particularly with the target market stuff, uh, the breakdown between people who used Angus in their target market and people who used other breeds in their target market. Uh, so with with Angus users, they were more likely to target the feeder market, uh, with just over thirty-five percent um targeting the feeder market of all Angus users while with other breeds it was around 30% and other breeds tended to 
favor things like the butcher trade. And so, yeah, it was just interesting. However, um, Angus users were also targeting the background market. And it just really illustrates that marketability of Angus that producers are really chasing or are being incentivized to introduce Angus into their herds. So yes, and considering the amount of work going into developing breeding indexes from the Angus breed development and taste analysis, it's interesting to see that those markets have been well and truly catered for by providing information at the breeding point um, to allow producers to achieve their breeding objectives when it comes to market those those cattle. So there was a lot of movement from year-round mating to control period paddock joining, which we found quite interesting and probably reflects a number of factors. Improvement of infrastructure is definitely one of them. Again, most of the year-round paddock mating was based in northern Australia just because of those expansive management areas that they're looking after. And it was particularly evident in places like the Territory, where about 71% were were utilising year-round paddock mating. But yes, it was just interesting seeing the shift from year-round paddock joining to controlled period paddock joining. And that will be further illustrated when this survey is conducted in five years time to see how that dynamic has shifted further if it if it continues to do so. What did the survey gauge in terms of trait selection for bulls being utilised in Australian producers breeding operations? That was really interesting Shane. Again temperament is king and we saw that across the board apart from in the territory which really valued bull checks so making sure a bull's right to work and in South Australia they had valued poldness the same as what they had valued temperament. Realistically my takeaway from people's attitudes to bull selection criteria is that they want a bull that will go out and get calves in and the genetics that they deliver is a second consideration. The producers are more concerned about calves hitting the ground and then as that uh, becomes more of a managed surety then they're starting to look take a deeper dive into things like ebvs and looking at their pedigree and getting raw data on those animals so yeah it really it really illustrated to me how important producers place calves on the ground which is one of the greatest profit drivers in the australian beef industry so when it comes to the results within the beef breeding insight survey what are some areas of development noted for the breed in terms of reasoning why those are not utilizing angus genetics so the big, there's a big three here. One is uh, it's not suited to local conditions, meaning heat tolerance, which is uh, why so much of my job is focused on R&D in this space. And then the other is around sort of tick and fly resistance. And so there'll be continuing work there. People also listed temperament as a concern these represent a smaller group of producers within the survey group itself but if it's a producer considering that temperament is such a high priority in terms of bull selection criteria it's no surprise that producers concerned around temperament and want information on it. Moving on in terms of resources what does Angus Australia have to support producers wanting to utilize Angus genetics in the northernmost parts of Australia? Well, first and foremost, there's me. <laughs> um, a fair bit of my job is around supporting producers and you know providing them information and extension on some of the work that we're doing. Um, and that's a part of my job that I really love. It's really important to me that producers continue to be productive and profitable. I think profitable producers will really see the industry continue to thrive. There are there's a just an absolute plethora of 
uh, resources on the Angus Australia website. There's new research being conducted all the time. We have the Education Centre on the Angus Australia website, which is being maintained with very informative uh, segments where you can provide education and tools uh, that you can utilise to achieve your breeding objectives. We have a suite of bull management, like in terms of acclimatising bulls when they come to your property to get the very best results out of them, um, particularly for Northern Australia. And they're also on the website and very helpful and informative. And it really illustrates the management required and the prior preparation to make sure that you're you're getting the best out of your investment. You just touched on it but the final question is uh, Angus Australia has provided the northern protocols which are guidelines for utilizing Angus bulls. Considering the content how are these resources beneficial to producers currently or are looking to integrate Angus bulls into the north? They're very informative, Shane, and they sort of cover off on all aspects of management required to get a bull on the ground and working, particularly if they're being bought from the larger Angus base, which is in southern Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. A lot of the people, and again, this is where the Northern Development Consultative Committee comes in, a lot of members have experience selling bulls to the north, and it's about getting that relationship between the purchaser and the vendor to work together and achieve the best possible outcome so when the bull is delivered on farm that he will perform when it comes time for joining and so it just illustrates some of the timings and some of the conversations that you should be having with the person you're purchasing a bull from some of the considerations around animal health such as their vaccinations and just general acclimatization as well as some of the feed considerations, so whether they're being fed grain and then will be coming to a rangelands type situation. It, ju- it just is quite all-encompassing and just looks at all the factors that might influence a bull's fertility and performance once it, once it hits the ground. And finally, if anybody needs to get in contact with you, how do they do so? There are a number of ways to get in contact with me. Certainly email me, call me. My number is 0417 219405. Uh, uh, That's a big part of my job and I'm very keen to help people in their operations and look at their breeding objectives and I have an entire brains trust behind me in Angus Australia so being able to deliver a lot of the research and a lot of the information that we have to you is a huge part of my job and so please take advantage of it. Great, that wraps it all up. Thank you very much Shane. An integral part of Jen's work is getting out on the road, compiling case studies featuring producers that utilise Angus genetics in their northern herds. In December 2020, Jen caught up with Jeremy and Julie Shaw. Jeremy and Julie operate JS Grazing, a family enterprise located across a number of properties in the Injun area in central Queensland. In their chat, the Shaws let Jen know the background of their operations and why they use Angus. I want to thank the Shores for giving insight into their business. Here's Jen and the Shores. Good afternoon. I'm sitting here with Jeremy and Julie Shaw um, of Double J in June. Jeremy and Julie, I just wanted to get some background. I understand that Double J is very much a family affair. And if you could just elaborate on where you're situated, 
uh, what sort of country you're running and a bit about your enterprise here at Double J. Yeah, well, JS, we, we operate JS Grazing. It's, a, yeah, as you said, a family, family enterprise. We operate across four properties in the Intune District and um, I don't know, it's roughly 23,000 acres. Yeah, a mix of country from lighter through to heavier brigalow scrub soils. Yeah, well, I guess it's a like a multi-generational operation now. We Jeremy and I sort of separated off from his mum and dad. They'd been in business together for a fair while before we got married, and and um, but they're very much still involved, like day to day. If we go mustering now, it's it's pretty well Jeremy's mum Jen and our youngest boy Leo in the buggy, and they. They go around the outside of the paddocks, and yeah, Jeff's Jeff's uh, with us as well. That's Jeremy's dad, and and Henry's our eldest boy. He's he's pretty keen on horses. We haven't convinced Leo to to share it um, as yet. We've, but um, yeah, so it's very much a family deal when we go out in the paddock at the moment. That's lovely. And so, in terms of your enterprise, what are you mainly running? Well, Angus, we're straight, a straight Angus herd. We, on the whole operation, I guess we run about 1,300, around about 1,300 cows. And up until this year, we've sold the majority of them as weaners. We have an annual weaner sale in Roma at the middle of the year, so early July, where we sell our weaners, but we've, we've just taken a, the step of revamping our feedlot. And so we've, yeah, it's a big, big change for us this year. We're, we'll, feed most of our own cattle. So yeah, no, it's suit us and yeah, we're happy with the way things are going. And so the change into feeding your own cattle, is that a, a reaction to climate conditions such as drought? Yeah, it pretty well, that's what drove it. We, like not this last year, when like it took us a lot to, you know, both money-wise and effort to get the weaners to sale in the way that we were sort of accustomed to having them presented and Jeremy's a bit of a stickler with that like near enough isn't really good enough so and that just made us think year in year out if that was going to be the the smartest thing for us to do so it was we sort of started you know that we were thinking along those lines and then like everyone else you know, around Christmas time last year, 12 months ago, like we were feeding cattle and, and we were really at the mercy of, you know, of trying to get feed here and it, it didn't take much of a hiccup and, you know, there was a fair few sleepless nights which, you know, we weren't the only one in that situation but it just got us thinking about how we could sort of, you know, we can't control the weather but how we can be better situated if when and it's not if it's when that situation comes around again so it was a we had the well I'll let Jeremy talk to you about the feedlot side but we already had sort of a feedlot here it wasn't operational um, so yeah we, we sort of changed or it wasn't that big of a change we could just improve and revamp the infrastructure that was here. We invested a fair bit of money in a commodity shed and which is both for the dry times as well as the feedlot side of things and um, yeah it, it'll stand us in good stead in the future hopefully because you, you'll always get the dry times so mm. we just wanted to be ahead of things a little and 
hopefully be able to have some on-farm storage and just lessen the impact a bit, I guess. And I understand there was sort of a vertical integration component to this decision as well? Yeah, that's, that's right. People, like we do, we've done very well out of our wieners in the past, but the people who bought them were obviously making money, especially on those steers. And um, yeah, we figured we'd, we'd take a bit of that, I guess. You know, we take the next step as well and we'll take them right from birth to, to slaughter, I guess, yeah. And you're still intending to sell some of them as wieners, considering that you've got such a following? Definitely, yeah. No, we'll still sell the, well, the lead of the heifer portion so we'll we'll still sell two to three hundred heifers each year we've got a, a really good following and interest in our heifers and going into a, you know a replacement female job so yeah we'll definitely keep that that side of things going and we invest a lot of money i guess in high-end genetics so yeah i i think we're we're reaping the benefits of that with our females so it'd be a shame for some you know for that to be lost I guess. On that genetic side of things can you walk me through your breeding program so what age do you join your heifers how do you select them are you self-replacing your own heifers how long your joining period is that type of thing? Yeah well we join as heifers as 12 months old I guess around that 12 months old they're definitely self-replacing and we do an AI program most years weather dependent I guess we've got a three about a three-month joining period, mid-October through to mid-January, I guess. We just we did a program this year with our heifers with um, a, a bull that we bought last year. Yeah. yeah, that's something Jeremy and I really, we both enjoy doing that, so we try whenever we can. So what's the breakdown between what you had joining and what you're ai We've tried in the past to do an AI program with cows as well. It's more difficult than heifers. Logistically, yeah. it's difficult for us here. We're, we're very dependent on the seasons. If you've got, if we've got feed, and yeah, we can do the cows, but it, it's 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 quite dependent on the season for us. So at the moment, we're just doing our replacement heifers, which is anywhere from 100 to 200, I guess, heifers each year. We we generally we have used some. We generally buy a. a a good young heifer bull and getting collected and you go that way. We have used lots of plenty and stuff in the past, but yeah, we try to make use of the genetics we buy and we pay a bit of money from, so we, we want to get the most we can out of them. So, at what age do you first start joining heifers? Yeah, well, they're, they're yearling maiden, I guess yep. you'd say. So, it's last year's keep heifers is what we uh, you know joined this year. So. Um, it is like we probably expect a fair bit of our females, both as a hef, you know, as a heifer, like the age that they're they're joined at, and then also going forward, like if they don't raise a calf, this year's probably been a little bit lenient on on like second calf heifers and things because of the conditions that we had at joining. But fertility's pretty important. Yeah, so you're putting a lot of pressure on on. The female herd. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we definitely, and we we understand that, but we we look after them as well as we can, and we we've seen the results. Still, somewhere like, you know, we we preg tested the mid to high nineties. So yeah, we're as long as we can keep that up and look after your cow post weaning, we'll continue to keep the pressure on them. I guess. Oh, that's fantastic. So, what traits are you trying to breed for? specifically like what are your breeding objectives what are you trying to achieve on the female side she's got to be feminine a softer easy doing female that'll will get in calf each year 
they, I guess they've got to have eye appeal like we, yeah, it's the same with bulls. So if you've got to like the look of them, a bull especially, we don't necessarily go in there on paper. We'll we'll check the, the figures and that afterwards. But yeah, well, you've got to like the bull and I guess everyone likes a different type and we've got our type. I guess in terms of like, when we go down to a, a bull sale, like sometimes it's, it's it's a bit of a package, I guess, isn't it, Jeremy? You know, I know when I first started going to sales with Jeremy when we were down south, like I'd have written an essay, like in each bull catalogue and I'd have, you know, three different coloured highlighter pens and, and all that sort of thing. But we've sort of, we used to have, you'd have like a short list of bulls that you'd go in and then you'd have a look at them on the ground but in the last few years we've probably turned that on the head that we yeah Jeremy I have conversations about bulls but we really walk into the <clears throat> into the yard and it's you know you just see what catches your eye first and then mm. and then start looking at at everything else really yeah a soft animal that's depth of rib like yeah depth of flank uh, up here when the weight, you know, because we do go through some tough times, that if you get those high, higher flank cattle, um, that really shows up when the weight comes off. So a good, deep, long, soft animal, is, I guess, is what we're chasing. Yeah. yeah. And so when that comes through, so when you select a bull by eye appeal, do you then revert back to looking at some of their EBBs to make the final decisions? It probably depends on what we're looking for. I mean, if you know, some year we don't buy a heifer bull every year that would come into play, and I get we probably don't have any hard and fast reels. Like we look at, you know, ribbon rump fat, but we like a positive fat, not a deal breaker. We like them above average if we can in all the trades. I think you've you've got to try and go that way. You want to be breeding above the average, so you'd like you you like the EBVs above average, but it's definitely a type where based on a type, aren't we, Bill? Yeah. So, and that, that's, that's the main focus for us, I guess. And is easy carving a priority? Obviously, with so much fertility pressure, um, I imagine that's something you look at? Yeah, for sure, the, mm. the dazed carving and having the, the carving is direct and stuff all comes into play, yeah, for sure. And that comes down to a lot of type of, the type of bulls. We don't select extremely mm. low birth weights or anything like that, we won't won't look at them actually and um, it comes down to a lot of body type as well as uh, like they, got, they can be in the threes to the threes and fours for us and, mm. you know to to join to a heifers that's just a personal thing but yeah that's the way we we go about it so where do you source most of your bulls like are you um, attending bull sales or are you buying seen predominantly for your two different breeding programs yeah, well, pretty well we've bought exclusively from Milamara for quite a number of years now, but it, it is insane that, like, it's important. Jeremy tr does try and get around and have a look at other sales. Like, I, I, I think it's sort of don't want to get closed off and not look at what's happening elsewhere either, but the Milamara bulls just really have performed so very well for us and um, we just really like them it's, 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 um, it's hard to um, it's as simple as that really and I think like it's easy to go to a, a sale and in every sale there'll be like a standout bull but it's like when you like the herd as a whole I think that's important and that I think that's why we click with Milamara we've, mm -hmm. we've got similar um, objectives yeah 
um, views, I guess, on, on cattle. We've developed a relationship. It's more than um, just, you know, where we go to buy our bulls. There's his, Ross's opinion, he's sort of a mentor a little bit to us and, um, you know, he, he don't, that, that doesn't mean that we always agree with everything that he says, but, um, yeah, it's just being able to talk things through and where, you know, if we've got a bit of a change of direction or something that we're trying to do, um, you know, it's that it's important, that relationship, to be able to talk through those things. So with your bulls coming from Bathurst, is there any sort of steps you take in acclimatising them to the conditions in injury? Yeah, there is. You've got to look after them. But in saying that, they, they get treated like anything else. We, we've moved in. We, we do buy some yearling bulls from there, and we like to look after them as, as much as possible. They mightn't get a full joining the first year. You'll pull them out early and look after them, but you just got to be on onto them, and if, if something goes wrong, you'll, you'll take them out and give them a rest and uh, pick them back up again. And we always say that you don't like to look at them until they're four or five year old. Uh, but in saying that, we've had no trouble with, you, you know, with the longevity of them or anything like that. We've, like we said, we we, we won't change at the moment. You just got to look at their calves, is what I tell mm. people. Like you, you might do that because they then they're going to do it tough. Like that's that's a given in those first couple of years. It's just natural coming up here. But um, no, you look at their progeny and and they pick up and you know, after a couple of years they're like any other bull. So yeah, no, we're, it's not a drama anyway. Put it that way. Yeah. We probably do a similar, pro like when they arrive here, we just have them in, um, you know, they'll stay in the yards or the f a feedlot pen or something. They're normally, they're up here before it's, you know, they're normally up here before the end of September. So it's, mm -hmm. they're not coming up into like ridiculous heat, which is probably a good thing. But yeah, they stay in just on hay in the feedlot for a few weeks and then then they might just go out into a little paddock here just again not into the general population but depending sometimes they can just get I think this year we put them straight out into the cows instead of putting them in you know in the, we run all our bulls pretty well in one bull paddock so that can sometimes be a bit of a risk I guess if you put them there but yeah once they're in the once they're in the paddock and we pull them out like around that end of January, February, they pretty well get treated like anything else unless mm -hmm. they are a yearling bull, like Jeremy said. They mm -hmm. sometimes can get just not used for the full joining. So I guess this begs the question is, when did you start using Angus and why did you start using Angus? We were originally a Hereford herd. Everyone in this area was pretty well Hereford, so it was a, they used to have two Hereford sales a year in Rome, special sales and stuff. But So I, I guess it was, we've been in them about 20, we started crossbreeding originally, but about 20 odd years was when we had our feedlot going and they ate well and didn't get sick. Yeah, they're a good fertile cow, so that's when we we gradually just went to straight straight Angus and um, haven't looked back, I guess, haven't wanted to change. And uh, I think the society does such a great job that of promoting them, I guess you'd say, or what would you say, Jules? The, the, they're a very, very progressive society, I think, the Angus Society, and yeah, no, we're we're happy. I wouldn't like to go a lot further north with the straight, straight black herd, but um, yeah, they they're good foragers and they they do well in this country for us anyway. So yeah, we're we're happy. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> Can you think of any challenges or limitations that you've had with using Angus? Like you said that you wouldn't like to use straight bred Angus 
much further north, but things like buffalo fly, is there anything that really comes to mind? No, I don't think there's anything in what we do that is a limitation because of the Angus. Obviously, yeah, buffalo fly and all that is a, is a drama, but that's just a management thing, like you manage accordingly. I don't think there's any limitations to having Angus cattle here. I can't see any anyway, and there's, there is quite a few herds getting straight of black around here. Yeah, I, I was probably the heat's the only thing I can think of, and like Jeremy said, there's things, and you just manage, you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't go out in the middle of the day or lunchtime and start mustering a mob of cows, you know, to, to get and expect to get the calves to the yards, things like that. But that's, I mean, every breed has their yeah. has their thing, and I've been moving to the back to the feedlot I was never here when they fed cattle so that's um, a new endeavour for me Um, I was concerned about the heat but yeah like Jeremy said you fed them for quite a while and and hadn't had any troubles in the past but the shade that you said you saw when you were driving up the road that was a non-negotiable for me because I'm I'm a bit of a softy and we will feed like at the minute with the country that we have here and and when we join we will be feeding black cattle through the hottest months of the year purely because of when the weaners come off and you know when they're going to start hitting the the target weight to go in so that will just be part of of feedlot management we'll do everything that we can to make sure that that doesn't cause too many problems for us but yeah I think it is something that we will have to manage and we'll do our best. Well Lily and Jeremy thank you very much for talking with me I'm very grateful for you both sharing your story and hope to see more great results coming out of the Roma sale yards but also over the hooks once you start selling direct after finishing them in your feedlot. Thank you very much. Thank you. we've come to the end of this episode of the podcast thanks to everyone for tuning in again to this episode i'll leave you with a recommendation to make sure you visit the angus australia website to access the northern focus location discussed in today's episode for all the resources regarding utilizing angus genetics in the north the northern focus location can be accessed via the homepage of the angus australia website Another recommendation coming into May is to keep your eye out on socials for updates about Beef Australia. With Beef coming up, make sure you are watching Angus Australia's Facebook, Instagram and Twitter accounts for all the updates coming from up north, whether you are making the trek up or not. We will be keeping everyone up to date with what Angus Australia is up to while we're up there, including the Angus judging results and catch-ups with our members. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. And let us know what you want to hear from us in the next couple of episodes. Also, make sure you check out our previous episodes for all things Angus. And that's where I'll leave you. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you on the next one.